Okay, in a minute we're going to have a Bible read to us. So if you grab your Bibles and turn to page 162. Uh, We've just finished our sermon series on Exodus. In September we're going to start a, a sermon series on John's Gospel that will take us right through to Christmas. Uh, we're going to have the next three weeks looking at three, at three different letters to churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, our preacher tonight is uh, John Best, who is our men's pastor. I'm going to get John just up to ask him a couple of questions spontaneously. Haven't been primed. Not a hard question. This is, this is John, if you haven't met John. Good evening. Uh, I've, met, I've met quite a few of the guys here. How many do you reckon? Uh, half the guys here. Cool. Yep. And I know them by name. I'm not going to test you. No, it. you can test me. <laughs> Yeah, I can see, I can see Tim, and I can see Angela, and Angela, and I can see Scott, and Anoop, and I haven't met yet, and John was at men's convention, and Edward was there, and uh, Joffrey, how are you, brother? All, all, all the men are on this side, and, and, <laughs> and these guys pray for me as you do, so thank you. Yeah. John, tell us about your uh, your family. So you married to married to Megan, beautiful woman. Uh, we've just celebrated 25 years two weeks ago, so we're thankful to God for that, and. Um, I've just sort of put a little marriage point in, in my sermon, but uh, we have two daughters. Um, they're 20 and 22, and we're thankful to God they both have a faith. Uh, our 20-year-old just went forward for baptism a couple of weeks ago, so we're thankful for that. Yeah. And they live at home. Yeah. We're happy about that. So. Now, when, when you're not, we're not preaching for church, what, what are you doing? Uh, in terms of pastoring work or other work? Other work. Yes, yeah, so two-thirds of my week, I'm a doctor, I work as a specialist in sports medicine, so I do that through an orthopaedic clinic, and uh, a third of the week, uh, I'm the men's pastor here, this is month eight of, of that role. Um, the two main parts of my job description are to help men develop their disciplines of prayer and Bible reading. Um, the third and fourth points are to identify men who are leaders here and to train them a little bit more, and the fifth point, which... Is, is my passion is evangelism and evangelism training. So uh, I'm trying to meet every guy one-on-one. Uh, there's 191 men on the registry, church uh, directory, and met about 82 of them so far, so I'm thankful to God for that. Just hearing guys' life stories, how they came to faith, seeing if I can help in any way with resources and getting their ideas on, on men's ministry. Yeah, they take about uh, 45 minutes to an hour and a quarter. Yeah, it's been, it's been a real encouragement. Looking back on the last eight months as being men's pastor, just highlight one thing that uh, God has taught you personally. God has taught me personally that he is big and he loves people and he, he meets people where they're at. So when you hear people's stories, they are so diverse, how they came to faith, how God used people, how the word of God came into people's lives. You hear about grandparents who prayed for someone for decades. Um, You hear about people who've had other religious backgrounds but were dissatisfied with that so they went searching. They're extremely various and um, God's grace in the midst of that has been massive for me. So it's been a real encouragement to hear those testimonies. Yeah. Thanks John. I'm going to pray for John and then we'll hear the Bible read. Thank you Father for our servant John. Uh, Please help him to open your scriptures tonight in a way which is true to your word. Uh, that he engages our hearts and our minds and our souls, and please transform us uh, through his preaching tonight. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Paul and Jane are going to read the Bible for us.
Okay, the first reading tonight comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting at verse 4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Hi, the second reading is from Revelation, so on page 1126 of the Black Bibles. Revelation 2, 1 to 7. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands says, I know your works, your labor, your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, thank you again. Uh, what I should have said also that my wife Megan and I are members of the 9.45am congregation. I try and come here about every six weeks and I always enjoy it when I do, so it's good to be back. Uh, will you pray with me as we look at God's word together? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God and as we look at your word, as Jesus has said, if we have ears to hear... Please, Lord, give us not only ears to hear, but hearts that are open to transformation and change. And as our hearts change, may our lives change. May we seek to serve you and live for you. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen. I wonder how you feel about getting feedback or being reviewed. Have you been through that process where you've been reviewed or had feedback somewhere? Certainly when it's done well, it's very helpful. It's very helpful to find out strengths and weaknesses. It's very helpful to change from that. If it's done badly or unfairly, it's a disaster. It's a disaster, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, it's so negative and deflating for the person and can leave scars. But if it's done well, it can be life-changing. For some people, it can be life-saving. So in my other job as, as a doctor about a year ago, I was asked to do a reference for somebody. He was very capable. Um, I was asked to give some feedback on his previous position. But I couldn't really write one, honestly, because I had noted 
that in the few months to 12 months before, his, his character had changed. It was around the excessive use of alcohol and some aggression with that. So what do I do? Do I not get the email? No, that's not right. Do I just try and sweep it over and hope he'll change? Will that be going against my conscience? I contacted him and I said, look, I can write a reference for you, but it's going to be pretty basic and I don't think it's going to help you. And I went through why. He was pretty unhappy. But it was the catalyst for him to then talk to other people who knew him. And I'm pleased to say that led to really a lot of honest self-analysis and change. What we have here, in what was just read by, by Paul, is a letter to a church which is feedback. It's feedback from God. And what we're going to do is, is look at it from the perspective of the resurrected Jesus talking. The resurrected Jesus talking. So my big idea is that the resurrected Jesus Christ, as the king and ruler of the universe, as the controller of life and death, he calls us to hold on to him and make him our first love. So in terms of the setting, the, uh, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. Uh, John was an older man at this time. He was exiled on, on an island of Patmos, and there may be a picture there for you coming up. And um, I did try and get funding from the parish council to do a little bit of research and visit there, but it didn't get up. No, I'm just joking. Um, St. John's Monastery is at the top there. It is a Greek island at the moment. Um, one of the guys at Morning Congregation asked me, are there many tours that go there, Contiki tours, but they don't have that sort of tour. But it's a popular place. So John was actually there exiled because of Roman persecution to the churches in, in the Asia province. And if we just go to the next slide, we have Paul on this island, the island of Patmos, and he's writing these letters which are to be circulated to seven different churches. Now, I'm not sure if you're someone who goes to the book of Revelation very often. Uh, many Christians avoid it because the language is tough. One of the styles that's in the middle and end parts is described as apocalyptic literature. That just means unveiling. So it uses very powerful symbols and images to give a message. And this style of writing was very common. It's in other parts of the Bible, such as the book of Daniel. And it's usually written at a time when a church is heavily opposed or persecuted. Uh, Dr. Paul Barnett, who's a major New Testament historian, he states that the key theological features in Revelation are based on the gospel. And he has this terrific sentence which he says, um, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature that's infused with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we actually see the gospel through revelation, through revelation. And a key point as we look at this, I, I would recommend, and has helped me enormously in my preparation, is to look at this as the resurrected Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ who's speaking, who's speaking. <clears throat> so what I'd like to do, and you'll need your Bibles, is we're going to go to chapter 1 and pick it up at verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. I don't know what you think about if someone were to say to you, what do you think about Jesus, what comes to mind. Uh, as I go back into the Gospels, there's many things I love about Jesus. Of course, he's my personal Lord and Saviour. So Jesus on the cross and, and at Easter time in particular, 
I, I remember that in a very acute way. And I remember Jesus as a great teacher and people being in awe of him. And I remember Jesus as being absolutely countercultural, almost revolutionary, in how he dealt with women and children, absolutely against the society and culture of his time. And I remember Jesus looking at the outsider, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your place. Um, the, the, the woman in hemorrhage, Jairus' daughter, healing, raising people from the dead. I remember Jesus being angry at the temple. I remember Jesus crying at the death of his mate. But this picture here is a different Jesus. The Jesus in the Gospels toiled. The Jesus in the Gospel suffered. The Jesus in the Gospels had dirty feet a lot of the time. He would have been sweating a lot of the time. And we see a different Jesus who's speaking words of immense power. And I found this very helpful. So we'll pick it up at verse 12. And this is John hearing a voice and Jesus telling him, I want you to record what I'm going to say. So chapter 1, verse 12. I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe and with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. Son of Man, we know, is a term that Jesus described himself. We have here a picture of royalty, kingship. He's in a robe, he's with a gold sash. He's the ruler. It's a kingly honour. And lampstands indicate the churches, and these seven lampstands are the seven churches. And Jesus is among them. He's among his churches in this province. Verse 14. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. The colour white indicates purity. The white as snow and the woolliness could be ancient, wisdom, timeless. The fiery flame of the eyes may be judgment. And certainly feet with fine bronze. Bronze was a metal that withstood fire and heat. His voice like the sound of cascading waters booming like Niagara Falls. This is a big Jesus. This is a resurrected Jesus who is speaking as the resurrected Jesus. He has won the victory. Death is defeated. Evil has been dealt with. This is our saviour. The kingdom is here. He's speaking as king and ruler. And this is how he speaks and this is how he looks. Verse 16, he had seven stars in his right hand and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. His face was shining like the sun at midday. So the sun at midday is as bright as it could be. The word of God is described as a two-edged sword, a device that is efficient, a device that pierces, a device that, well, there's nothing like it. Jesus is the word and he speaks the word. So what happened to John, verse 17? When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I thought he was dead. It's understandable. What an immense, what an immense picture, what an immense encounter to have. And John was with Jesus. He'd had his encounters with Jesus. But, but this, and look at what Jesus does. He laid his right hand on me and he said, don't be afraid. Big but tender. Don't be afraid. 
I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Friends, may I encourage you as we just look at the text now to have this picture of Jesus in your mind, this big picture, this picture of the Jesus who has conquered death itself, he's living eternally, he's ushering in and has ushered in the kingdom of God. I don't know how you feel about that. Is it too fantastic to imagine? It's easier to see a human picture, but this is our Jesus, our God. He's big. He's big and he has something to say. The church uh, in Ephesus uh, had been around for some time. So the book of Revelation, uh, this, uh, this book was written around about 80 or 90 AD. Um, they'd already received other writings and teachings from the Apostle Paul. Uh, it's possible that the church had been around for at least 30 or 40 years. So some of the Christians who were alive had been Christians for at least 30 or 40 years. There was a maturity in that church. Ephesus was a large city, around about a quarter of a million people were there. And in these letters that will be, two more will be unpacked over the next two weeks, there's a rhythm, there's a rhythm in how they're presented. We, we get praise and acknowledgement for certain things from Jesus. We get this rebuke and correction from him, this call to repent and turn, and then a promise, and then a promise. So let's look at these bit by bit. First of all, praise from Jesus. How we live matters. How we live matters. Verses 2, 3 and 6. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, I know your works, your labour and your endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and you found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. Jesus has noticed. He's noticed they've worked hard. He's noticed that it's been labour. He's noticed that they've endured. He's noticed that they've even endured in his name and have suffered for that. He's noticed that they've tested false teachers and discarded them as liars. And in verse 6, we see about this group, yet you do have this, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, they're not some Greek soccer team or political party, Um, It seems that the Nicolaitans who appear again in verse 15 in one of the other letters to the church in Pergamon, they may have actually been Christians who then shifted to pagan and idol worship. So they sort of hung on to some things, but then they introduced others. Syncretism. Jesus hates that. That displacement in our heart for him, he hates that. The thing that I find curious is that he commends and acknowledges the works. And if we looked at a church with this sort of CV, 8 out of 10, credit, distinction, what what do you give them? It's not bad. It's not bad. But Jesus in verse 4 goes straight to the heart. Goes straight to the heart. I've seen all these things, he said, that in verse 4, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love 
you had at first. Abandon the love you had at first. If we just accept that our love comes from our heart, from our deep bits, and the Bible describes that part of us, our core, our heart, as what governs our thought, our life, our action, our motivation, Jesus is basically saying you're operating without me in your heart. You've abandoned me. You've abandoned what captured you. And he acknowledges that they used to have it. He acknowledges in verse 5, you did these at first. So what happened to these people? What happened to this church? What, what was the drift? How did they sort of shift from that? Some years ago, about 10 years ago, um, I'll just say my wife and I were having stress in our marriage. Sometimes men aren't very good at listening. I don't know if you guys know that, but sometimes men aren't good, but it's complicated. But anyway, we went and did a marriage enrichment weekend, which was very helpful. And I went back and I had the notes from it, actually. And there was a section where one of the facilitators gave us this exercise, this discipline, where he wanted us to uh, go off, sit side by side and not speak, but write down on a sheet all the things that were our first love for each other. Basically said, push out and forget the things that have cluttered your heart. Hurt, disappointments, expectations unmet. Go and remember. Go back and remember what your first love was. Maybe you've forgotten. And sometimes we can forget. Sometimes we can get, it can be so simple as that. We can get so preoccupied with how things are busy, the pressures of this world, the hard knocks, things can wear us down. Commentators aren't completely agreed what this first love is. Uh, Is it the gospel? Is it a demonstration of love for each other? Is it a combination? But I think it's helpful just for a moment to see what Jesus says about love like he loves. So if you've got your Bibles open, we'll go to John's Gospel, chapter 15. Verses 12 and 13. So page 994, if you have a church Bible. Page 994. Chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. Very, very famous quote, well-known quote from Jesus. Chapter 15, verse 12. Jesus says, This is my command, love one another, as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus is saying, love like I loved. His love was sacrificial. He gave up his life for us, the innocent for the guilty. He wants our love to be sacrificial. We read Deuteronomy. This is all through the scriptures. Love God totally, heart, soul, mind and strength. We did Exodus over the last two months. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. We've looked at this theme of idols that occupy our heart. Jesus doesn't want anything occupying our heart. And what happened, what's happened here is an abandonment. So what happened? Well, this is the part where, for me, it's been very helpful looking at my own heart and what happens 
to me as a 50-year-old man but a 26-year-old Christian. Lots of isms, ISMSs can happen, lots of isms. So you can have a period of time where you may not spend a great deal of time with God, you may seek to keep serving and doing good, you may be enthused by humans and human nature and goodness and before long, humanism and the power of human reason and human activity and human goodness, that may be your worldview. Or it could be that you're actually serving a lot within your church setting. Because you are a soldier and it's dutiful, D-U-T-I, if you will, and it could be, and I've done this, that you are saying to God, God, I'm serving, I'm creating this moral record, this good works, this CV, this will be my righteousness. Please accept me. Surely that's good enough. There's no gospel in that, is there? I've done that. I've done that. It's usually at a time where you, when you're a bit angry at God, by the way. That's what I've found. Or it could be the Christianity stuff. I'll, there's some good bits there. In fact, church is good. It's fun. There's nice people. The music's fantastic. <clears throat> they have good meals. I'll put that in that back pocket. But I'm going to have a bit of look at, look at the other. Buddhism looks interesting to me. It seems very peaceful. I'm made to feel guilty at church. And all of a sudden, syncretism comes in. I haven't done that one, but I know that it's common. So I'm not sure what this is saying to you, but Jesus gets jealous. That's not why he came. He hasn't come to have the left ventricle of our heart or the right atrium. He wants the whole heart. I'm not sure what he's saying to you. I'm not sure what he's saying to us. But the power and the source of motivation to love and serve should be because of Christ's sacrificial death. That's a beautiful way of serving. Beauty, not duty, as one of the Puritans said. And just to sort of finish on this point of of works, and, and there are people here who do more than I do. In fact, there's a lot of people here who do more than I do in terms of serving others. I know that. And I'm not here to criticise anyone for serving. But from a motivation perspective, I actually don't think it's difficult to give some money away and to do some good works. I, I don't think it's a difficult thing. I don't think it's difficult to be a good citizen in this city. But love that hurts, sacrificial love, is, is difficult. It's difficult for me. It can be very difficult for us. But because of what Jesus has done for us, that is the power, that is the motivation to serve sacrificially. So they may have their credit or distinction rating, they may get an 8 out of 10, but in chapter 5, sorry, verse 5, back to Revelation chapter 2, our text, so Revelation 2 verse 5, Jesus says this, and this is absolutely chilling. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
So in one verse, he uses the word repentance twice. We generally accept the word repentance to mean to turn around or to turn back or to come back. And Jesus used that word a lot. Once he was baptised, his first public gospel message was pretty simple. Repent and believe the good news, the kingdom of God is here. And he's saying it again, repent, turn back. If they don't, he's going to remove their lampstand. The lampstand represents them as a church. Jesus is saying to them, if you don't, the way you're going, you're going to be de-churched. You will not be a church of mine. You're going to be taken off my directory. I don't know what that makes them, a club, I guess, after that. Can you imagine? Could you imagine receiving these words? I find repentance a difficult thing to apply to myself because... I had a sudden conversion experience in March 1987 and I turned to Jesus in repentance and faith. And we we sometimes look at repentance at at the time where we became a Christian. So for some of us, we've been believers our whole lives. For some, it's a process. For some, it's an event. So, So for some of us, the idea of repentance is when I became a Christian, when God saved me. Or it could be I'll save up repentance for when I really stuff up for the really bad times. Jesus is saying something different. He's actually saying, repent because of your good works that have gotten you stuck. Martin Luther, the first Protestant, he says, all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. In the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus insinuates that we should pray daily as we pray for our daily bread, There is forgiveness in that. So at least once a day we should be looking at doing that. So I find this quite quite chilling really because at one level you see that there's a church making an effort but they've gone off track, they've drifted and Jesus wants them to come back. He wants them to seek the wonder of him as their first love. Uh, Simon Jackson sent me a quote from Charles Spurgeon, the 18th century preacher, on this this passage. I'm just going to read a couple of sentences. And it's around this idea of losing your first love. This is what Spurgeon says. He says, When we first loved the Saviour, how earnest we were. There was not a single thing in the Bible that we did not think most precious. There was not one command of his that we did not think to be like fine gold and choice silver. But now your religion has lost its luster. The gold has become dim. You know that when you come to the sacramental table, to the Lord's Supper, you often come there without enjoying it. We can go through the motions. I can go through the motions. And I'm preaching to myself here. It, it's so helpful to see this. It's so helpful to get these words from Jesus to come back, to come back, to actually hear from Jesus that, His expectation is that he will fulfill us and fulfill our heart. He doesn't want us to be replacing him with anything else. He doesn't want competition in our heart. So the things that are there need to be taken out. We need to repent from them. And as Anup prayed, as he went through that list of the common things that we get our identity in, that we may idolise, they're the things, they're the common ones. I don't think you left out anything, actually. It was comprehensive. Thank you, brother. 
in repentance in seeking him as we love each other, our service then becomes beauty and not duty. Beauty and not duty. Jesus then finishes with a promise, and I think this is very, very exciting, and I think it's very important. So verse 7, anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. So the promise is we have this access to the tree of life. So what is this? What's the tree of life? A key part of the story of the Bible is this, is the tree of life. I'm 50, I go to more funerals than weddings these days. You can tell I'm 50 because I tuck my shirt in still. But I go to more funerals than weddings, that's the season that I'm in. And I haven't suffered a great deal in all honesty in my life, but I'm around people who are. I'm thinking about heaven a bit more. I've lived at least half my life. So most of my life has been lived. And and I'm I'm comfortable with that. I'm thankful for that. I'm happy for that. And verses like this really encourage me and speak to me. Let's just look quickly at the tree of life. We're going to go to the front of the Bible and then the back. Go right to the front, Genesis chapter 3. If you've got your church Bible, it's on page 3. And we'll see what it represents and what it should have been. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, on page 3 of the Bible. The Lord God said, so what we have here is the consequences of sin. So Adam and Eve have disobeyed God. They wanted to be like him. They've sinned and relationships have been totally affected. And death has entered the world. The Lord God said, since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove man out and stationed the cherubim, which are guards, and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. There's no access to this tree which gives us eternal life. There is no access. You can't get there. Go right to the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22, which is on page 1141. And we'll look at the first two verses, Revelation 22. I don't spend much time here, but my wife does. She loves these last two chapters of Revelation. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then he showed me the river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and down the middle of the broad street of the city. The tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month, The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. So this tree of life is accessible. We go from no access to access. We go from death to life. We go from punishment to living and unity with God. We go from a world and a life where there is pain and suffering and tears. And if you read Revelation 21 and 22, there's no pain, there's no suffering and there's healing. 
That's just fantastic. And that's what it means to have Jesus in your heart and live for him. So individually and corporately, our access to the tree of life is about going back to our first love, to Jesus. It's placing him first in our heart. If you've been a Christian for a while, it could be that you have been drifting. And I'd encourage you to, to come back, talk to God in prayer, repent, and spend some time in the Gospels. That's what I'd encourage you to do. And talk to a friend from church who you trust. Or come and talk to myself or Paul as well tonight. If you're someone and you're visiting, and it's great that you're here, this may be a little crazy, some of this language. But we are talking about a supernatural God, and we're talking about life beyond earth and forever. But we're talking about a real thing. Jesus, who lived and walked on this earth, who died and rose again, and who took the punishment for our sins so that we have access to God and access to eternal life. Consider one of the courses we have here, if you're visiting. Please consider it, as an adult, if you've never done that before. It could be this is a great season for you, and you're just encouraged, which is great. Use that to encourage other people. Use that to encourage other people. So how do you feel about feedback and reviews? How do you feel about a heart check from God? For me, it's been very helpful. It's been helpful for me to see what's going on in my heart regarding love and truth and what motivates me. There's a lot I can hide behind. So I'm just going to give us a moment. You might want to repent of something now, just for your own personal reflection or prayer in your heart. And then I'll pray as we close. Lord, we thank you for our resurrected Jesus, the king and ruler of this universe, the controller of life and death. We thank you for what he gave up for us. Lord, as he calls us to hold on to him and make him our first love, we pray we may do that, that we may love sacrificially for your glory. Amen.